It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro with you once again in the front row, a CLNS Media Network podcast. And behind the scenes, as always, our creator, producer, and director, J.R. Quitman. Well, we're up to episode number 49 now, and what an amazing guest we have here, a historic guest, an iconic guest, back from the 1980 U.S. Olympics. It is a captain for the hockey team, Mike Eruzioni, joining us. Born in Massachusetts, around a big Italian family, he went to Boston University and became the captain of that 1980 team. Talks about the win over the Soviet Union, his head coach during that time, Herb Brooks, and so much more about the aftermath not only beating the Soviet Union, but Finland for the gold medal as well. So much to get into. It is the captain for the 1980 U.S. Hockey gold medal winning team, Mike Eruzioni. Well, well Mike, first of all, we, we appreciate you spending a little time with us. It's, uh, it's certainly an honor to have somebody uh, like you join us and, and be on this show. And, and certainly we're going to get into the miracle on ice and I'll talk about that a lot. But uh, we always want to see how our guests kind of got into their sport and how everything started. For you, you're a Massachusetts guy, born in Winthrop, and uh, you were born in an Italian-American family, and you grew up around that. What, what was that like for you growing up, you know, with a lot of relatives around in Massachusetts? Well, it's, it, it's awesome. It was awesome. I, I actually lived two houses from the house I grew up in, and uh, my, my son just bought the house directly behind me. My daughter lives down the street, so... Uh, my wife's mother lives four houses away. I, uh, it's it's kind of a sick area where everybody's related to each other. My, uh, you know, I, my brother's not far away. I, I grew up in a three-family house, um, and we lived in the second floor. And I have four sisters and a brother. And upstairs was my mother's uh, brother, who married my father's sister. And there were five kids in that family. And then on the first floor was my father's other sister, and there were three kids in that family. So I grew up in, in a home with 15 kids and uh, we played together. We competed against each other. Um, and, you know, fast forward years later, um, <laughs> the high school baseball team, the starting nine, six of the starting nine were relatives who came out of the three family house. So it was a, it was a great place to grow up. A lot of love, a lot of, uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, respect, a, a lot of, um, close family ties, which we still have to this day. You know, when my, like I said, when my mother was pregnant, my aunts were pregnant. And then my cousins had kids who went to school with my kids who now my grandkids go to school with. So it's uh, it's a pretty unique situation. It's and, and one that uh, I wouldn't change for anything. And with all those kids around, I'm sure there were a lot of sports being played. When did hockey start to, to become, you know, the, the sport for you during that time? Well, hockey was something you just kind of did in the wintertime. Um, you know, I, they used to freeze the tennis courts down the street from where I lived. And um, I didn't have any ice skates as a kid. And my friends used to skate. And, you know, you want to be with your friends and, and go play. So uh, I have one of my sisters had these white figure skates that I fit into. And uh, I'd get my sister's white figure skates and I'd walk down the hill to the tennis courts and try to skate or learn to skate or have fun and play. And uh, then eventually come home. And uh, the problem was hockey's a as you know, it's a pretty macho kind of game. And not only was I in white skates, but she had these blue pom-poms on her toes of her skates. And in those days, you could save S&H green stamps. And my mom saved up enough stamps to get me a pair of ice skates. So I took up hockey in the, win in the winter. But, you know, growing up, I was more of a baseball player than, than hockey player. And actually in high school, football was my passion. Um, I, I was fortunate. I was I was a pretty, pretty good athlete. I was in all state in all three sports that I played. And hockey didn't become a decision of mine until uh, basically after high school when by the crazy circumstances, I ended up at, uh, at Boston University. So, you know, again, like I said, you know, hockey was something you did in the winter. There was no team in my hometown. I played for the town next door uh, that had a program. But, um, you know, the only ice available was when it was cold and you skated outside or on Sunday mornings, um, this guy, Mr. Larson, had a learn to skate program, and we'd go there and, and, and skate it. He used to pay 25 cents or 50 cents to go to the, the Sunday morning skate. And like, like I said, hockey just kind of followed me, and that's the sport I ended up playing. 
And as you said, you ended up at Boston University. It was because of your name, right? You were supposed to go somewhere else. Your coach forgot your name. Yeah, no, that was – I don't know where that folklore came from. What, what happened was when I got out of high school, uh, I wanted to go to the University of New Hampshire. Um, and I wanted to play football, hockey, and baseball. And I went to prep school for a year uh, up in Maine, a place called Berwick Academy, with the hopes of going to UNH. And, you know, in, in my grades weren't very good. I, I wasn't the smartest guy in the world. And unfortunately, athletics were more important to me then. But now it's, uh, it's, it's very different, as you, as you can imagine. Um, so I went to uh, Berwick Academy with the hope of going to the University of New Hampshire. And uh, the hockey coach just didn't think I was a Division One player. Uh, the football coach really liked me and the baseball coach really liked me, but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play three sports. Well, when the smoke cleared, I had no school to go to. I, I had all my eggs in one basket thinking I'm going to go to UNH. So the only school that really recruited me for hockey was a school called Merrimack College. And at the time, Merrimack was Division Two; They weren't Division One. So Merrimack offered me a full scholarship, which was, believe it or not, was like $3,800 then my freshman year. So I accepted the scholarship to go to UN, uh, to go to Merrimack. Well, in the summertime, I, I didn't play hockey in the summer. I played baseball in the summer. And a friend of mine called me and said, look, we got a summer league game. Would you like to play? We need some players. And I went, yeah, you need a guy to play. I'll play. So I showed up and played in the game. And it turns out the guy refereeing the game was a guy named Jack Parker. Now, I didn't know who Jack Parker was. He just, other than a referee in the game. And after the game, this Jack Parker came up to me and, Asked me where I was going to school. I told him I was going to Merrimack. And he said, I remember you from high school. Where'd you go last year? I told him I went to Berwick Academy. And he goes, well, you played under Pop Whalen. Now, Pop Whalen actually played at Boston University back in the day. And I said, yeah, I played under Pop. He goes, well, we have a kid from Canada uh, that decided not to come to Boston University. Um, and Jack was the assistant coach at BU at the time. I found that out later. And he said, well, we have a kid from Canada that's not coming. Would you like to come to BU? And I said, well, I'd love to come to BU, but it has to be a scholarship. My dad can't afford, you know, $3,700. He goes, no, it, it's a full ride. I said, well, let me go home and talk to my father. So I went home after the game, told my dad the story. My dad said, what are you going to do? I said, I can play there. I said, I'm, I'm going to go to BU. So I, I showed up the next morning in Jack Parker's office and uh, signed a letter to go to Boston University. So uh, I end up at Boston University. Now, Jack Parker is the assistant coach. He's not the head coach. The, the head coach didn't know me from Adam. So, you know, at the beginning of the tryouts, I was kind of on the JV team. I then got put on the varsity and was center in the fourth line. And I was playing, but, you know, not playing a ton. We only played three or four games at this point. And the head coach got fired. And Jack Parker became the head coach. So I went from centering the fourth line to playing left wing on the second line and, and led our team in goal scoring my freshman year. So that's how I ended up at Boston University. And Jack Parker went on to a 40-year career as head coach of the Terriers as well. So you guys were, were paired together. Uh, are you guys still like that? That, that you know, you oh. mentioned one name, you mentioned the other as well? Oh, yeah. I, I, I see Coach all the time. He comes to BU games. Actually, his grandson's coming to Boston University next year to play hockey here. So... Uh, I see Coach quite a bit. Um, you know, uh, we have a bond and a friendship and a love for each other that's uh, been there for a long time. But, Jack, as you can imagine, you coach 40 years, you have a lot of love for your players that you coach. So he's very much a part of, of my life and an important part. Well, saw something in you and and, and you produced. Uh, again, you averaged, what, 20 goals a season? Uh, your four years at, at BU, you were the captain your senior season as well. Why did it? come easy it seemed like for you why do you have such great success there at boston university well I, I, first of all i played with great players um you know when i was at boston university we won four straight ecac championships which is now hockey east went to four final fours uh unfortunately didn't win any but i graduated then they won so obviously i wasn't that good but <laughs> I, I played with some great players i played with a kid named rick mahar was probably arguably one of the greatest players to play at boston university so you know, I, I was fortunate to, to play with, with the centerman that uh, got me the puck. And uh, always, you know, I always seemed to be in the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, I thought I was a pretty smart hockey player. Um, you know, and yet all four years at BU, I was the outstanding defensive forward in in, uh, in Hockey East. So I, I, I had a pretty good, well-rounded game that I think obviously fit into the way Jack Parker coached. Um, but I, I never really thought much about my success individually. Because um, I was on a team with great players, and we were always good collectively, and you know, winning championships. And 
you know, playing in finals of big games was uh, was something I kind of had my whole life. Yeah, 1973 to 77, you play for BU, the third leading scorer in the history of the program there as well. And and during that time, I guess you opened up some eyes for, for Team USA as well. You played for Team USA for a couple of years. How did that transpire? How did you make it onto that team? Well, I was selected to play in the, you know, in the World Championships. In those days, the, you know, the U.S. didn't send any pro players, uh, so they'd take the college players and yeah. the best players, college players that were American. And I was fortunate to be one of those players. So I played in the... Uh, in two world championships, which was pretty exciting, although we we didn't fare very well. The Soviets and the Czechs and the Swedes and the Finns were were pretty good those years, but uh, the experience was unbelievable. Yeah, what was it like in the U.S. hockey at that time? Uh, the talent that was out there. How do you grade it, maybe now to to or oh, then to what it is now? Oh, it's it's like night and day. Um, you know, prior to 1980, Americans and even Canadian college players weren't given an opportunity that they got later on. Uh, it was like if you didn't play major junior, you couldn't play in the NHL. And I, I think college players and, and absolutely American players were, were never really looked at um, from the NHL level. Uh, and then, you know, 1980, we, we won. Uh, I think we opened the doors um, and opened the eyes to, to the world about that Americans could play the game. And then, then the players knock the door down. I mean, you know, you can go back to Pat LaFontaine and Keith Kachuk and Tony Amonti and Brian Leach and uh, John Van Piesburg. I can go on and on and on. And Billy Guerin, name, name, you know, player after player. And now you look at the Americans that play in the National Hockey League. They're so good. They're so big. They're so fast. They're so skilled. Um, I mean, college hockey today, if anybody follows the game, it's, it's off the charts how good these players are. And, it's now an avenue. Look at some of the great players in the National Hockey League that are college players. Uh, 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 Kale McCarr out of, uh, out of Colorado is a college player. Uh, Americans, you know, Austin Matthews, um, Jack Eichel, Johnny Gaudreau. I can go again on and on. So the, the game has changed so drastically and the skill level of our players, American players, where they come from. Uh, years ago, you, you came from Massachusetts, Minnesota, Michigan. Now you come from California. You're, you're from Texas. You're from Florida. You're from Missouri, um, Vegas. It's it's incredible. Look at the, the you know Austin Matthews is from Phoenix, Arizona. Arguably one of the greatest Americans to, to, that, that plays the game. So uh, it, it's incredible the depth of our game, uh, and not only our men, our women as well. Yeah. The growth of the sport is incredible. Yeah, you mentioned you know college. The Frozen Four has become a big thing now these days. You, you start to see that on TV a little bit more now on the Division One college level. You know, for you again, a great career at BU, and then before 1980, you spent a couple of years in the IHL uh, with the, with the Gold Diggers. What was that experience like for you? Because it was pretty good. You were Rookie of the Year back in 1978. Yeah, well, again, you, you talk about my life. Uh, you know how how strange things have happened that, that led me to Boston University and. And led me to the Olympic team. You know, I, I graduated from college and I had a chance to play in the 76 team, Olympic team. And I decided I wanted to stay at Boston University. I thought, you know, that was a team that was going to win the national championship and I wanted to stay in school. Um, we didn't. And, you know, I guess looking back, uh, another part of my life that changed things drastically. So I graduated from college and the New York Rangers had my rights. So I went to camp with the New York Rangers and uh, I had a really good camp. And John Ferguson was the general manager and he, called my agent and said, look, we're not signing any, any, any players right now other than I think it was Ron Duguay, I think they signed, and maybe a couple of other young uh, first-round picks that they had. But, you know, we really liked Mike, and he had a good camp. Uh, but we're going to send him to Toledo, Ohio, so we can play in Toledo for the Gold Diggers. And actually, you could play there as an amateur because I did not have a pro contract. I got paid every two weeks by the Gold Diggers, and I, I think I made $4,000 my first year in Toledo. Um, so I go to Toledo coming from college hockey and I'm like, oh my God, what the hell am I getting into? <laughs> uh, and it was a great experience. I had so much fun. The people of Toledo and the gold diggers, they were like the Montreal Canadians to the, to the people in Toledo. And you know, that was the American born rookie of the year. We won the Turner cup, which is equivalent to the Stanley cup in the league. I, I think I finished second in our team in scoring and I was all set to sign with the New York Rangers. Well, John Ferguson got fired. Uh, as general manager of the New York Rangers. And Fred Sherrill became the general manager. 
And he called my agent and said, look, we're not signing any of John Ferguson's players. Mike is free to do what he wants to do. So at that point, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I thought maybe I go back to Toledo and try out for the Olympic team. Well, what I ended up doing was going to camp with the Colorado Rockies at the time. Uh, and I had a good camp with the Rockies and they sent me to Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia Firebirds. And I played nine games with the Firebirds and got a call from Herb Brooks that if I played one more game, I'd be considered a professional. Why don't I go back to Toledo and, uh, stay in Toledo as an amateur and try out for the 80 Olympic team. So I packed my bags and went back to Toledo, played, finished the year and got invited to try out for the Olympic team and made the Olympic team. And here we are talking today. So again, if, you know, if John Ferguson never got fired, I, I don't know where my NHL career would have gone. I, I, there's no doubt. I think I could have played. Um, I would have been a, probably a three, four year player, a good, good teammate, good locker room guy, hopefully a good guy in the community, but, you know, I would have been probably an average professional hockey player and uh, decided to, you know, well, let's 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 play on the Olympic team and see what happens. And here I am. So a, a meeting with Jack Parker gets you to B.C., as you said, the GM gets fired and, and, and you make it to the Olympics. What was it like, you know, that process, getting that team started in <laughs> 1980? And, you know, as, as that team came together, there were, you know, teammates of yours at Boston University. Herb Brooks was the Minnesota coach. So there were a lot of Minnesota players as well. What was it like bringing everybody together and everybody mixing together? Well, it was really easy to do. You know, people questioned whether the Minnesota and the Massachusetts guys would get along, especially Minnesota and Boston University, the four of us. And Wisconsin and Minnesota was always a big rivalry. And Bowling Green with the two guys from Michigan was always a big rivalry with Minnesota. So people wondered, you know, can these guys blend? And, and you know, we blended right from the beginning. I mean, uh, if you know the mindset of a hockey player, you realize at a young age how important your teammates are and how important it is to be a team. So we never had an issue. We laughed about it. it you know, 42 years later, we still laugh about it. Uh, it was, you know, something that, uh, you know, we, we rallied around in, in some ways. So, uh, you know, once our team was picked, the 26 players, uh, we understood we, don't, we weren't playing for Boston University or, or Bowling Green or Michigan or uh, Wisconsin or Minnesota or North Dakota or Minnesota Duluth, we, we were playing for the United States. And we, we realized that right from the beginning. Herb Brooks, what was he like as a coach? Herb was like your dad. You know, you, you love your dad, but sometimes you hate your dad because he makes you do things you don't want to do. And, and that was Herb. I mean, he challenged us every single day. He made us better players. He made us a better team. Um, and he always said there was a method to my madness. And we couldn't figure out what that was, but when, when the smoke cleared and we won the whole thing, we went, wow, <laughs> now we know what he was talking about. But he was a great motivator. He was a great uh, teacher of the game. Um, you know, what we were doing in 1980, NHL players are doing today. Uh, he was way ahead of his time in terms of blending our team and putting us together to win. And certainly you did. And as you said, you know, it it means more being <laughs> you're playing for your country rather than your your school how about playing in your country, Lake Placid, New York, where the Olympics were in 1980? Did that add stress to you guys, or, or what was that like to, to be playing at home? I, I don't think we would have won if we were playing elsewhere. Um, I think the home crowd, uh, I think being in your own country in general, the food that you're eating, speaking English. You know, I covered I covered Olympic Games uh, in Sarajevo and in, in, in France and um, in Norway and. I saw, you know, it can be a little difficult when you're out of your country. You know, the, the food habits, the sleeping habits, everything's a little different. So to be in Lake Placid and to, you know, walk down the street in, in, in Main Street and see Americans and people waving the flag and watching the other athletes compete and spending time in the Olympic Village with all the athletes, especially the American athletes, um, I think it was a big plus for us. Any of the other athletes that you were starstruck uh, seeing during that time, during the 1980s? Well, how can you not be starstruck without, you know, mentioning Eric Hyden? You know, Eric Hyden won five gold medals uh, every other day outdoors. <laughs> and, and the, the rink, uh, we, the oval was right next to the hockey rink. So we would stand on the fence and look down and, and watch Eric just absolutely perform off the charts. I mean, you don't win five gold medals. That'll, that'll never happen again because everybody specializes in speed, you know, sports now. They, they, run, they skate one race or two. Nobody's skating five. So, I mean, that, that was absolutely amazing. 
And, you know, we got to watch the figure skaters. Um, you know, I remember Lisa Marie Allen, uh, Linda Fradiani, uh, you know, Phil and Steve Mayer, um, you know, the, their, their performance, um, you know, winning, winning medals. Uh, you know, we didn't get to see the skiing, but we got to see the athletes after. So, you know, there were, there were times you got to know some of the athletes. And, and unfortunately for hockey players, we played every other day. And when we weren't playing, we were practicing. So you didn't really get to spend a ton of time with the other athletes. But, but do remember, um, you know, some of their performances. Beth Hyden, Eric's sister, was, was, was a speed skater at the time. There was a, a big thing about the two of them possibly, you know, winning some medals. So uh, yeah, it's hard to remember back 40-something years ago. But th those are some of the things come back into my head. Yeah, almost 43 years ago coming up here soon. But, uh, again, as you said, you were playing almost every other day. And in the group stage, you guys went undefeated, included a 7-3 win over Czechoslovakia, the team that was predicted to finish second. So at that point, did you think that this this thing was rolling and this thing, uh, something special is happening here? Uh, you know, I, I, I hate to sound like Bill Belichick, but <laughs> it was one game at a time. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we never looked beyond the next game that we were playing. You know, we, we had a great tie against Sweden. Billy Baker scored arguably the biggest goal of the Olympics. You know, if Billy doesn't score and we lose to Sweden, uh, who knows how we respond against Czechoslovakia. But our confidence level, you know, after the Sweden game increased and after the Czech game increased, and then it was on to Norway, then it was on to Romania, then it was on to West Germany. And, you know, the goal was to get to the medal round. I mean, that's what Herb talked about all the time was let's get to the medal round, get to the medal round. Who knows? Anything can happen. And uh, we got to the medal round, and, and then you prepare for that next game. Well, February 22nd, 1980, it was the Soviet Union. Tell us what it was like preparing for that, going into that, and the message from Herb, getting ready for the Soviet Union. Again, the, the favorite, they had won so many medals leading into that, what, four-time defending champions. What was it like, the message that he was giving you guys? It's a hockey game, um, and you got to be ready to play it. Uh, you can't make it any bigger than it is. Uh, when I talk to kids today, I tell them you can't get too high because then you're going to run around and not play your game. And if you're not prepared you're too low, then you're going to get your head blown off. So I, I went into that Soviet game, the same mindset that I went into the game against Norway. Uh, continue to do the things that we as a team had to do in order to win. I, you know, I remember the night before the game, I, uh, I went out to my parents were staying in, in the uh, – in a trailer park and I had a state trooper take me to, to the, the site where they were staying and sat around and had a couple of beers with my dad and my mom and my high school football coach and my cousin and some other friends and had the state trooper got me back to the village around 10 30 11 o'clock you know get up the next morning uh, had a pre-game meal and went to the rink uh, prepared to play a game that uh, I, you know I played many many times in my life and and Again, like I said, I, I, I knew it was a big game. And I think as a team, we knew it was a big game. But again, you just have to continue to do the things that we were doing throughout the Olympics that made our team successful. And, <clears throat> you know, Herb's speech before the game, um, and I kind of played hockey with a football mindset, you know, wait for that coach to give you that speak before you out in the field you go. And I know the movie, it was a lot longer than the speech. I remember his speech as being, you were born to be a player. You were meant to be here. This moment is yours. And out the door we went and uh, played a pretty good game and, and, and won four to three. And, you know, it's funny when the game was over, Herb never said congratulations. He never said great game, great win. Uh, we were embracing each other in the locker room. It was in a very emotional locker room. We, we were pretty excited. Uh, and, you know, went back after the game. Uh, ABC grabbed Jim Craig and I to interview us. And that was the first time any of us had talked to the media during the Olympics. We weren't allowed to go to any of the press conferences. So this was the first time any of us had done anything. And the rest of the team went back to the house where our parents were staying. Um, they called it the hostage house. And they watched the game because the game was on at 8 o'clock. And Jimmy and I didn't get a chance to see the game. So I remember going back to the village and there were signs in all different languages congratulating the hockey team. On, on, on a great victory. And I went back and couldn't really sleep that well that night, but got up in the morning and went to practice. And we were, we were signing pictures and guys were just laughing and joking. And Herb came in and flipped out, um, screaming and yelling, who do you guys think you are? He flipped up the table. 
and uh, put us through one of our harder practices uh, that we had all year. And I'm thinking, you know, why is he so pissed off? You know, we, we just beat the Soviets. Um, but he had to bring us back down to earth. He had to get all that energy out of us. You got to remember, our average age was 22. You know, we were the youngest, you know, we'd be the youngest team in college hockey today. So uh, we, you know, we had some young kids that were just enjoying the moment. And Herb brought the reality back that we had another game to play. And I said to him years later, I said, Herb, we were ready to play Finland. Uh, you, you didn't have to scare us that hard. And a matter of fact, after we beat Finland, I think we'd, we, we'd have been ready to play another game. That's that's the type of team that I played on. These guys just loved loved to play hockey. So, uh, you know, we 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 beat Finland. We win the gold medal. And uh, Herb never said congratulations. He never said great win. He he let us enjoy the moment and enjoy the victory. Yeah, some people think that win over the Soviets was the gold medal game. It was not. You had one more to go. Uh, but let's go back to that that game because again, it's a tight game. It's three three in the third period, about halfway through. You just come onto the ice, take it from there, and tell us about what became the the game winning goal. Well, it's it's a play that came kind of out of nowhere. Actually, if if you look back, it, it's the almost the exact same spot that I scored against the Soviets when we lost ten to three. Matter of fact, I think it's in the in the exact same spot. In but Madison you know, Square I came Garden, over the, right? at Madison Square Garden, so. You know, it's a, you know, hockey's a game of reaction. Things happen, plays happen, and you know, the, the I, I, Buzzy Schneider came off, and I was up next. So, Pavlich and Harrington were still on the ice. They were in Buzzy's line, and I remember coming over the red line, coming into the zone, and the puck went in the corner. And, and John Harrington did a great job of getting the puck and beat the Soviet player to the puck, and he chipped it up the boards to Mark Pavlich, and Pav got there the same time as the Soviet player did. And he kind of saw, saw me coming across the blue line and he kind of deflected the puck over to me and the puck came to me. <coughs> and it's amazing how many things can go through your mind in a short period of time. And I thought if the defenseman stayed, I was going to use him as a screen uh, and shoot. If he came at me, I saw Harrington and um, uh, Davy Christian to my left kind of going towards the net and Billy Baker. And he stayed, I shot and, I'll actually be honest with you. When it left my stick, I thought it was in. Uh, but I didn't see it going because of the defenseman in front of me. And the only thing I thought of was that I pulled it because I was going across my body. I thought I might have pulled it a little. And I, when I saw the replay, you know, later, I did pull it a little, and but enough to get under his, under his blocker. And I didn't know it went in until I saw the people behind the net jump up in the air. And then I realized that, uh, you know, it went in and we had the lead. But you know, I've said many times, uh, you know, first of all, if it wasn't for Mark Johnson, we don't win the game anyway. Uh, Mark was so important and scored all the big goals. And, you know, I think that's what made our victory so so unique was everybody did something and contributed at some point. Whether it was Jimmy making big saves, was Mark scoring every big goal that we needed. Uh, our team defense, Kenny Morrow, was spectacular. Um, we played four lines. You know, we didn't just play one, two, three, four, and then one, two, or one, two, three. We outscored our opponents, and this is an, an amazing statistic, and I didn't know this till maybe about a year ago. We outscored our opponents 17 to three in the third period. Wow. That's an unbelievable statistic. Uh, and that shows all the skating and all the conditioning and all the method to my madness for Brooks uh, paid off. So, you know, I was fortunate to give us the lead. And, um, and we continued to play well in the last 10 minutes. And, you know, I, I haven't seen the movie in a long, long time. But in the movie, it's like, you know, the Soviets had 100 shots in the last 10 minutes. And I've only seen the game twice. And I saw it a few years ago. And in the third period, I think the Soviets only had five or after I scored, I think they only had five or maybe six shots on goal the rest of the way. So we, we shut them down pretty good at the end. You only watched that game twice? Yeah. yeah. Really? Well, I know the outcome. <laughs> and I, I laugh about it. I say, I don't want to be sitting at home watching the, the Soviet game. And one of my buddies shows up, you know, like, let it, you know, let it go. It's over. You know? <laughs> but I, I think with the grandkids at some point, uh, if I can get somebody to change the tape from a VHS tape to a, a CD, maybe I'll watch it with them. Well, again, you score what would be the winning goal, but there were still 10 minutes left. What were those 10 minutes like? <laughs> it was pretty long. Uh, but, you know, again, it was just 
he can, you know, you see it more in the movie. Uh, Herb kept saying, play your game, play your game. And, and that's what the mindset was. Just continue to do the things that we were doing throughout the Olympic Games. Don't change because you have a lead. Don't do anything differently. Continue to do what made us successful. And, you know, yeah, it was a long 10 minutes, but the clock eventually wound down and uh, we ended up winning. You mentioned the, the fanfare afterwards. Was it, you know, the, the non-U.S. fans, was everybody against the Soviet at that, the Soviets at that time? Was, was, did that heighten the fandom that you guys, it, you know, it received? Was, it, it was deafening in the building. Um, you know, it's funny, when you're on the bench, you could hear the USA, USA chants. But when you're on the ice, you didn't hear anything. You heard a, a teammate asking for a pass or heard whistling for a line change. Uh, uh, and even on the bench, you, you you still heard some of the chants, but never near as loud as it was from what people told me because you're so focused at the task at hand. It's, it's again, it, it's amazing what your mind can block out um, when you're focused on what you're doing. So, you know, you, you're watching what's going on. You're, you're waiting for your next shift to come up. And, you know, waiting for the guy in front of you, Robbie McClanahan, in my case. And, you know, Robbie's coming over the boards. It's my job to go over after him. And, you know, we, we would play, you know, four lines in, in maybe a minute and 15 or a minute and 20 seconds. Sometimes you'd be out in the ice for 10 or 12 seconds and you'd change and somebody else would be jumping over the board. So it, it was really like you were in a, not a fog, but you were kind of just so focused on what was going on at the time that you, you weren't so clued to what was happening in the stands behind you or around you. The game wasn't broadcast live, <laughs> but that broadcast kind of elevated Al Michaels as well. The, <laughs> the fans were counting down. He kind of tied into that, was counting down, and, and, and he had the line. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. I mean, when was the first time you watched that? And, and you know, I just watched it the other day, getting ready for this, and it gave me chills now. Did, did that do that for you when you watched it the first time? I, I didn't see it for quite a while. Uh, because I didn't watch the game with my teammates. So I heard about the call, but I didn't see it. It might have been weeks uh, later that I saw, that I actually saw it. Um, and, you know, I got to know Al. And, and Al calls himself our team mascot. Uh, <laughs> and we have some team events once in a while, and we try to get Al to come to it. And he has shown up at a couple of things. And I've played golf with Al over the years. And I remember every time we play golf, we're walking up the fairway, and it's just a matter of seconds before somebody will yell out, hey, Al, Mike, you believe in miracles? Yes. And Al will look at me, and I go, I knew it was happening. It just didn't know how long it was going to take. So, you know, Al's, it was a great call. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe it was a miracle. I, You know, we, we see miracles uh, with, with our doctors and, um, you know, what they're able to do and the lives that people are saving those are miracles. It was a hockey game that was a, an incredible, incredible victory. But uh, it, it was a catchy phrase. I mean, that said, in your mind, is it the best moment in American sports, do you think? Um, with due respect to everyone else, yeah. And, and I say that not for, for, for us in collectively, but what it meant to a nation. Um, you know, we could use a 1980 right now. Maybe our soccer team will do something and, and create that excitement that they've already generated. But, you know, when it when it's when it's the Olympic Games, it's a nation that watches you compete. It's not Boston or Chicago or Detroit or New York. You know, we every year there's a Super Bowl and, you know, there's one winner from one city and another city loses and the other cities don't care because they're not playing in it. Uh, so I think our our moment touched the lives of a country that was looking for something to feel good about um, you know, what had happened with the hostages, what had happened with the uh, gas lines, inflation. Um, you know, it was we, we were we were struggling as a country to, to feel good about ourselves. And, you know, we didn't know it at the time until after the Olympic Games, we realized that this thing was was greater than that. And there aren't many sporting events that touch the, the lives of so many people in this country like that moment did. And again, I don't say it to pat ourselves in the back. Uh, I say it because that's what makes this country so great is that moments like that capture the spirit of our country. It captured the, the work ethic, uh, what makes this country so great. And, um, and that's what our team was, you know, uh, Herb called us a lunch pail, hard hat group of guys. And, and that's where we were. Uh, many of us came from working class families, uh, that had great values about hard work and dedication. Um, you know, my dad was a Marine. 
So I knew how important it was to represent your country. So I think that's what made our moment so special and so different than other sporting events. And like I said, I'm, I'm waiting for another one to happen. I hope it does. I think it would be something that would be great uh, to, to rally everybody around. Well, again, you beat the Soviets two days later. It's Finland. You guys had to get back up, get back ready for that game and the gold medal game. And, and, and you're down two to one in that game. What was Herb Brooks like in the, in the locker room in between periods, getting you guys motivated to go back out there against Finland? Well, you know, it, it, we were down to Sweden. We were down to Czechoslovakia. We were down to Norway. Uh, we were down to West Germany by two goals. We were down to the Soviets throughout the game. So this wasn't anything different for us. Um, I've always said a true test of a team is how you respond when your backs are to the wall. And throughout the Olympic Games, we responded um, incredibly well. And, you know, it's two to one going into the third. Uh, I remember Jack O'Callaghan, he must have said it a hundred times. There's no way a bunch of Finns are keeping us from a bleeping medal. <laughs> and I think Herb fed off the energy in the room. And he walked in, he stood in front of us, and he said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your bleeping grave. Then he walked out, he stood at the door of the locker room, and he said, you bleeping grave. And he walked out. And we just kind of followed him out on the ice. And I think, in my opinion, and um, it was probably the best 20 minutes of hockey we played all year. Uh, we dominated the third period. We scored three goals. Um, we won four to two, and <laughs> we won it all. Again, you go back to the method, to his madness, right? The third period was your period, and it certainly paid off there again. And so the podium, there's there's only room for one person <laughs> for the podium for the national anthem. You're the captain on that team. How, how did you become the captain of that, that team? Uh, it was a player vote, but I don't believe I was voted captain by my teammates. I mean, there's no way 12 guys from Minnesota are voting for a guy <laughs> from Boston. Um, but it wasn't a big deal to me. Um, it was obviously a great honor. But I've always said I was a captain amongst captains. Uh, O'Callaghan was a two-time captain at Boston University. Billy Baker was captain at Minnesota. Buzzy Schneider was a captain at Minnesota. Uh, Mark Johnson and Bobby Sudo were captains at Wisconsin. Kenny Morrow and Mark Wells were captains at Bowling Green. Uh, Ramsey, Christian, Christoph, uh, all captains of their high school teams. And, and if I look further down, I'm sure there were more guys in that team that were captains of their high school teams. So, uh, you know, I, I've always said I was a captain amongst captains because these guys were great players and great leaders. Uh, and it was great to be in a locker room with so many leaders and so many captains. So, like I said, it was, it was a great honor, but not a big deal. Um, so, you know, we, 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 you know, we, we win the game and, uh, everything takes, uh, kind of a, a crazy turn. You call your teammates up though, after the anthem, was that something that you had discussed beforehand or, or because that was another iconic and great moment of, of all of this as well? Yeah. I, I'm not that smart to think that far <laughs> ahead. Uh, what actually happened was they told us, this is what's going to happen. Each guy's going to get a medal. Mike, you'll be the last guy. We'll give you the medal. Uh, after you receive your medal, turn and the anthem will be played. And that's all they told me. They didn't tell me after where to go, what to do. So I'm standing on the podium with my teammates. And I remember giving a fist in the stands to my Uncle Tony, uh, who drove up for the game with my brother. Um, and I remember looking at my teammates, and they're kind of walking towards me like, what do we, where do we go? What do we do? And it was just a reaction. Um, you know, there's no way one person should be on the podium when, it, when it's a team event. And if you look back after that games, every Olympic game since 1980, it's a long platform uh, where all the players stand on the podium, which is the way it should be. Um, you know, we all fit. Uh, I don't know if we'd all fit today, but we all fit, <laughs> we all fit then. Yeah, you may have started uh, something again. Like you said, it's it's changed since then to where everybody can can be part of that. And what was the aftermath like? I know you got a call from President Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Uh, what was it like right after that? It was just crazy. Um, I mean, you, you couldn't go anywhere because people were like all over you. Uh, but we did go downtown. We went to a couple of bars. Um, you got to remember the, the drinking age was 21 and three quarters of my teammates weren't 21. Uh, but obviously we found a way to get everybody a few beers. Some, some players went back and celebrated with their parents. Uh, I know we had to get up early, early in the morning because 
we had to be at the airport at 6.30 for President Carter was sending a plane uh, to take us to the White House. So uh, I remember almost walking into the Olympic Village around 4.30 or 5 in the morning uh, trying to collect all my gear uh, to take it and pack it up uh, to take it to back home. Uh, fortunately, my dad uh, took my hockey equipment and the hockey sticks that I had left from the game, so I didn't have to, I didn't have to take those home. Uh, but I had, you know, the Olympic clothing and, uh, you know, they turned it into a prison years later. So I, there could be some inmates walking around with my clothes on because I, <laughs> I know I left some stuff in the room. Yeah, just too much going on to worry about all that stuff. And right. uh, again, such a great teammate. And you had teammates in Jim Craig, as you said, the goaltender was was one of your teammates as well. What was it like playing with him and seeing him have the performance he had during that Olympics. Well, it, it, it was great seeing Jim. I mean, you, you want to win a tournament, you have to have a good goaltender. And Jimmy played spectacular during the games. And, he, he, you know, we relied on him quite a bit. And his performance was was spectacular. Uh, but again, like I said earlier, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of players did a lot of things uh, that enabled our team to be successful. And uh, everybody had a role. And everybody understood what that role was and performed at, at the best of their levels for the two weeks that, that we played. Such a high for all you guys. And, and, and some of them went on to play in the NHL. You, you decided after the Olympics to, to retire, right? You didn't really play yeah. after that. What, what was, no, what, I, why? I, I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, the Rangers offered me a contract, Buffalo and Minnesota. Uh, I was 25 at the time. Uh, I, I actually thought about going over to Italy and playing over in Italy. And I just thought it was time to move on. Um, Again, I'll go back to what I said earlier. There's no doubt I could have played. I think I would have been a good three or four year player. Uh, you know, nobody walked in and said, "Here's 50 million." I, I think I'll play. Um, so to me, it was peace of mind, and I thought it was time to move on. I was going to coach and teach. I remember calling Jack Parker up after the Olympics later and said, "You know, I'm thinking of getting into coaching. Um, you know, maybe you, you may have a spot open next year." And I uh, said, "Well, you know, let's you know, let's just talk about it later." And uh, then all then the phone calls started coming for speaking engagements and TV appearances and uh, broadcasting opportunities and all of a sudden my you know the phys ed major that I was uh, that uh, drastically changed so um, life took a different turn for me I didn't know how long it was going to last uh, still thought I was going to get into coaching and teaching and uh, here I am 42 years later uh, I do help out with our high school hockey team I've been doing that for uh, well over 40 years. A um, couple of years, I was an assistant coach here at Boston University, which was kind of fun because I finally was part of a team that won a national championship as an assistant coach. But, uh, you know, life has uh, taken an interesting turn for me because of what happened in 80. I, I work here at Boston University. I've been here 28 years in development, uh, almost an ambassador role in some ways. Um, I continue to do a lot of motivational speaking, uh, keep busy with that. I I wrote a book a few years ago that uh, became a bestseller, which was kind of fun to do something I never thought I one I was capable of, of doing. Um, so you know, life has been uh, it's been fun. I, I still live in my hometown, and you know, I haven't changed. Uh, the things around me clearly have changed, but you know, my 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 wife and I have been together since she was 16, so that's going on 50 years. I have you know, three kids. I got six grandkids, and uh, as I always tell my wife, we could have lost. Uh, but I'd still be happy. I'd still be doing some great things. And we wouldn't be talking today, but <laughs> that's just the way things are. Well, well congratulations. It's almost 50 years of marriage. That in itself uh, deserves a gold medal there. Uh, but the, the book, it, it took you 40 years to, to write the book as well. Your book, uh, The Making of a Miracle, came out in 2020. What took so long? I never wanted to write a book. I, I never thought about it. Um, you know, I didn't want to go to pub, you know, signings and media and all this kind of stuff. And um, I didn't think about it until uh, Neil Baudet, who, who wrote the book with me, um, called me and said he wanted to do a book about the 80 Olympic team. So I called a bunch of guys on the team and almost every one of them said that we, you know, we don't need the aggravation. Uh, if, if you spend time with my teammates, you, we, we don't like limelight. We don't like a lot of a lot of attention. Um, you know, the guys who want to go fishing and hunting, the Minnesota guys and you know, the Boston guys, we want to go play golf. So uh, the guy said no. And then Neil said, why don't you write a book? And I went, I don't want to write a book. You got to go, you know, got to tell your life story. You got to sit down and talk about things. And I, and I thought about it. I went, you know what? I, I think I will do it, Neil. 
and I wrote the book, and I say this in the book, I wrote it for one reason and one reason only. Uh, I want my grandkids and their grandkids and their kids to know that Papa's life wasn't one game or one goal or one moment. Uh, I wanted them to know about their great-grandmother and their great-grandfather. I wanted them to know about their aunts and uncles and cousins and family and how important family is in your life. Uh, and, and that's the reason I wrote the book. I even told Harper Collins, I don't care if anybody buys it. And they said to me, you're not supposed to say that. I said, well, you know, that's just how I feel. And actually it turned out well, it became a bestseller and I guess it's out in paperback right now. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I, I guess looking back, I'm glad I did it. And, and this is funny. We're having this conversation because my wife is hounding me. Uh, she thinks Neil and I should write a children's, uh, oh. hockey book. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of debating that. I, I may talk to my grandkids and ask them about it. Yeah. I mean, just a couple of minutes spending time with you here. I could tell you're a very humble guy. I mean, again, you're such a, a big figure in American sports and, you know, the, the movie Miracle, the Disney movie that came out, were you involved with that at all? You know, what was no. your thoughts on that? I thought it was good. Uh, Kurt Russell was actually amazing. I mean, brilliant as Herb Brooks. Uh, if that movie came out later, I think he could have won an Academy Award. His performance was spectacular. Uh, although in the movie, he's a lot friendlier. Uh, <laughs> Kurt Herb was a little more intense. They softened him up in the movie. I thought the movie was fine. A little Hollywood here and there. Um but I had nothing to do with the movie. I didn't want to be involved in the movie. Uh, I felt if I was involved and my role was different, the guys would have went, wait, that didn't happen. Oh, you were an advisor. That's why. So I stayed away. And, and actually, I think basically the whole team, I think Jack O'Callaghan was involved a little with the movie. But for the most part, it's really the Herb Brooks story and we're a part of it. Uh, I, I thought the HBO documentary was spectacular. I, I thought it was better than the movie. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's a great story. Kids like it. My grandkids haven't seen it yet. Uh, I'm dreading the day they watch it because I'll have to watch it again. But <clears throat> I thought I thought the movie captured the spirit of our team. I thought the movie cap captured the closeness of our team. And I thought the movie captured what it meant to a country. Uh, I think they really did a good job of, of showing the pride and the patriotism that followed uh, after we won. Again, almost 43 years later, are you ever surprised about, you know, people that notice you, people that recognize you and the notoriety that you're still getting people like me that want to talk to you about <laughs> such a great moment? I, I think the worst thing that me that happened to me was podcasts. <laughs> I, I can't tell you how many calls I get uh, um, and how many requests. I did three interviews yesterday. And this is this is this is this is the fun part of it. Uh, two college students and one high school student that are doing uh, their, their thesis on the, the Cold War. And I get that call a lot. They want to talk about what was going on in 1980 with us and the Soviets. Uh, I'm doing, I, I am talking to a high school football team uh, from the Midwest tomorrow that are playing in a state championship game tomorrow night. And they asked me if I'd call the locker room before the game. Um, so I get a lot of those things. Uh, I, it does surprise me, but it doesn't surprise me because Everybody wants a feel-good story, and our story and our team was a, is a feel-good story. Now, I don't know what my win-loss record is over 42 years of talking to teams before big games. Um, I don't know if it's I don't know if I'm above 500 or below, but you know everybody's always looking for an edge in some way. So uh, you know it, it doesn't surprise me what what, what sometimes has happened, uh, and sometimes it does. But um, you know people come up to me and. They'll say, I remember where I was when we won. And I'll go, we, I, I didn't know you were on the team. <laughs> but that's what the moment meant. And you saw the letters I get in the mail from young kids wanting autographed pictures. They, they heard about it from their grandfather or their grandmother or their mother and father, or they watched the movie. So um, it's, it's, again, it, it's a great story. It's a feel-good story. And uh, we need to talk about more positive things in this world than the negative things. Well, I know you're you're somewhat responsible for one victory, and that's the the Red Sox over the Yankees in 2004. We had Trot Nixon on our show, and he said that in 2004 they were down 3-0. They watched the movie Miracle, and then you came into the the clubhouse, right? I I my dad who passed away a while ago was a fanatical Red Sox fan, and they were down. I think it was 3-1, and I got a call from the Red Sox to bring the ball out to start to to, to the game, to bring the ball to. So I'm in the dugout, and first of all, I'm a fanatical Red Sox fan and, and baseball guy. I played in Fenway when I was a kid, and 
They had highlights of 1980, and it said, if it happened then, it can happen again. Please welcome Mike Ruzioni. And I come out of the dugout, and I put the ball on the mound, and I believe Pedro pitched that game, and they won. And I went home, and I got 40 copies of the movie Miracle and brought them in the locker room to give to the team and to, for them to watch. And they went on and won the World Series. And my dad, to this till, till he passed, always said, if it wasn't for me, the Red Sox never would have won the, the World Series. So uh, if you talk to Trot Nixon, tell him thanks for remembering that moment because it, it was one of my highlights uh, um, after, after the Olympic Games uh, to be a part of, not a part of it, but, a, you know, some a silly, silly story about it. Yeah, Red Sox fans look at you in a whole different light than the, the rest of the country from 1980. <laughs> 2004 was more important to them, for sure. Uh, Mike, this has been a lot of fun. Again, I know you're very busy, as you said, a lot of speaking engagements and different things. How, how can people follow you? How can they kind of still keep up with you? And again, another I'm, anniversary coming up here soon, 43 years. Yeah, I, you know what? I'm, I'm not a, a social media guy. I am on Twitter, uh, and that's about it. I think somebody told me I have Instagram or something like that, that maybe my son maybe has and runs for me, but I, I don't follow it. I hate it. I'm not, uh, I'm not on Facebook or, you know, Twitter I use to thank people for things that I, you know, speaking engagements and business things that I do at Boston University. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I don't have a website. I don't think I have a website, uh, but you can find me at Boston University. Um, pretty easy to find. You can Google me, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that's about, I guess that's the only way to find me, but uh, I'm, I'm easy to get a hold of. Well, again, incredibly humble, uh, such a, a big figure in uh, American sports. Again, the, the biggest moment, uh, one of the biggest moments out there, as you said, uh, in, in American sports. And it has been an honor to have somebody like you uh, join us for our podcast here today. I can't thank you enough for, for spending a little time with us, Mike. Well, thank you very much and have a, have a great holiday season and stay safe. Well, great stuff there from Mikey Ruzioni. We appreciate him joining us, taking some time out of a very busy schedule, what he's doing now, talking to a lot of teams and a big Red Sox fan, certainly helped them to that win in 2004, no doubt about that. Great stuff there. And again, we thank you for watching, for listening to this week's episode, episode number 49, featuring Mikey Ruzioni. We hope you subscribe. We'll have more great guests coming up. Again, reminder, this is a CLNS Media Network podcast. Be sure to check them out and check out other great podcasts as well, including Cedric Maxwell, one of our previous guests. Thanks for joining us here today in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.